National Archives podcast series. Can I first of all, before I start though, say that a lot of what I'm going to say is linked to what's on the, the website for the project. And so I'm going to give you the sort of call-up sign for that website at the start, which is www.finerollshenry3.org.uk. Now, what we have on the screen here at the start is this splendid image of Henry III himself from his tomb in Westminster Abbey. It was put up about 10, 15 years after his death, and it was intended to be... Um, actually, that's not quite right. Let's get this completely right. It was put up about 20 years after his death in the 1290s by William Tyrrell. It's a wonderful gilt bronze effigy. And it, it was meant to be a likeness of the king. The actual order said, ad similitudinem regis. And I think in that slightly concerned, handsome face, we, with the beard, we get as close to Henry III or his physical appearance, as we, we can. Of course, you probably know that his body must be perfectly preserved in his tomb in, in Westminster Abbey. And we would know far more about it if Queen Victoria hadn't intervened, because in the 1870s, the then Dean of Westminster, Dean Stanley, went on an amazing trawl through the tombs of the uh, kings and queens of England and opened a lot of coffins. Um, some of, saw some very grisly remains in the course of so doing, and was going to open Henry III's coffin. He took off this wonderful effigy, got down to the coffin, and was going to come back in the evening to open it. But it was at that point Queen Victoria intervened and said she was not amused at these schemes to uh, investigate the bones of her uh, predecessors, and Stanley was stopped. Well, as all he got to do was to actually measure the length of Henry III's coffin, and it was six foot one and a half inches long. Now, as I, I don't know whether there are any undertakers here, they could probably tell us about this, but as I assume um, coffin length and body length are, are different, and bodies are shorter than coffins, if Henry III's coffin was six foot one and a half inches long, I imagine his body was perhaps five, 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 six, so he was a, a man of, of middle height. Um, I used to be quite keen for the tomb to be open, but since then, on basically really using material at the National Archives, I've written a very learned article about exactly what was the clothes with which Henry III was buried and sort of looked at records showing that. So I'm now completely against having the tomb opened, <laughs> lest I should prove to be wrong. Um, so anyway, there's Henry on his tomb. And of course, one of the longest reigns on record, 1216 to 1272, 56 years, only nine when he comes to the throne in 1216, and a, ra a reign of huge political constitutional significance. At the start of the reign, Magna Carta is implanted into English political life. At the end of the reign, as you can see from the heading up there, the parliamentary state was coming into being. The, the beginnings of the House of Commons, the summonings of knights and burgesses to Parliament. So a very big transition, constitutional developments. And that's where, in a way, the fine roles fit in. So how do the fine roles and how do the fine role projects fit into this sort of overall um, scenario? What are the fine rolls? I hear a, a strangled um, cry. Well, the fine rolls are the, um, the earliest of that great series of chancery rolls which are unique in Europe and one of the chief treasures of the 
National Archives. These chancery rolls survive from the beginning of John's reign, from 1199 onwards, but probably the fine rolls, unlike the other ones, go back much earlier than that. So they, they're the very first of these rolls prepared by the English royal chancery. And there's one roll for each year of the king's reign. So, and you, you start each roll with the beginning of the regnal year. So Henry the regnal year starts on the 28th of October. So every 28th of October, the clerks have to start a new set of chancery rolls, a new set of fine rolls. You could hear them groaning as they had to do, oh my God, let's start a new set of the rolls. And what's the form of them? Well, they're done on sort of membranes of parchment, and each membrane is about that sort of long, and then another one is sewn on, and they go on and on and on like that. And a, a really long roll might have 10, 15, 20 membranes. It might be 20, 30 feet long if you unroll it. It's great fun to unroll it. I've done it occasionally when I brought students to the National Archives, and I hope none of the officials have, have seen me do it. So you can un it would stretch from here right to the end of the room if you unrolled one of these uh, rolls. And uh, in their pomp in Henry's reign, one roll might have over 40,000 words in it. Well, if we click on in the images, we'll see that's a, obviously a hugely blown-up image of a particular membrane. In fact, the membrane at the very start of the the rain. I'll come back to that. And there's another one uh, of the membrane at the beginning of year four. That's 1219 to 1220. So that's what they look like. They're obviously written in Latin on parchment, which is sheepskin. And as I say, you have one. Uh, that's, a, that's actually here, um, an image of the whole of the membrane there. So it would actually be about sort of that big, I suppose. And then another one would be sewn on. The stitching is lovely. It's, it's often original. Uh, and so on, and it's written in beautiful handwriting. I hope none of you here are uh, interested in the later period and sort of 14th, 15th, 16th century, because the handwriting gets absolutely terrible, doesn't it? I personally can't read any of that awful Tudor hand, but the, um, the 13th century hand is beautiful, beautiful script, and I think this, these rolls are amongst the finest that the clerks in the medieval period produced. So those are the actual physical appearance of the fine rolls. Now, what's actually on them? Well, the fine rolls are actually different. They're not merely the earliest of the chancery rolls. They're also um, quite unique in the type of content. Because whereas the other chancery rolls simply record the output of the king's chancery, so charters are on charter rolls, letters patent are on patent rolls, letters close are on close rolls, the fine rolls, in their original form, recorded something quite different. What they recorded were offers of money to the king for concessions and favours. So at last we get to it, what is a fine? A fine is basically an agreement made with the king, a negotiated agreement for some concession or favour. So what sorts of things might be on the roll? Um, an earl or a baron who wished to succeed to his family inheritance, he would offer the king money, so he would make a fine in so many you know, hundreds of pounds to, to succeed to his inheritance. Or if you were a lord and you wanted the license to set up a new market or a fair, you would offer money for that, or to create a new private park, something like that. If you were, uh, if you were the, a town, in, a, a, the governors of a town, if they wanted urban privileges, you would offer money for that. Or if you were a, a widow, a baronial widow, you might well have to offer money to marry who you wanted, or not to be forced to marry. And we've got an example of that 
here we go on to this one. Here we have the fine of Margar. You can all read that, Marjorie de Rypar, which in sort of more modernised form is Margaret de Redvers, and that's from 1229, and she's offering money. You probably can't read it, but she's, she offers money so that she shall not be compelled to marry so long as she wishes to live without a husband. Um, rather extraordinary thing you might think to have to offer a mo money to the king too, not to be forced to marry someone. Even more extraordinary if you go back and look at Magna Carta in 1215, because Magna Carta was supposed to ban fines of that nature. No woman was supposed to be forced into marriage by the king, by the charter. So that's 1215. This is 1229. It makes you wonder whether the um, parchment was worth, sorry, the charter was worth the um, parchment it was written on. So that's the sort of extraordinary material you might find on the fine rolls. There's also a large amount of material about the Jews. And if we go on to the next fine, we actually see the fine for Mirabel, who's the widow of Elias, the Jew of Gloucester. What a nice little sketch of her there. We'll see a blown up version of that in a bit in which she's making a fine with the king in order not to have to shoulder the debts of her, her late husband. So an extraordinary um, array of material on these rolls and as the reign of Henry III goes on they expand in content and actually quite a lot of material comes on them not related to fines at all so you have a lot of records of appointment to local office if a sheriff is appointed to run a county that might be recorded on the fine rolls a lot of material about debts of uh, rates of debt repayment so if for example you owed the king £100 you wanted to pay it off at £20 a year or something that might be recorded on the fine rolls so uh, multiplicity of material becomes placed on the rolls and all of this is there without them, without them losing a very intimate connection with the king. Now that goes right back to John's reign, it's extraordinary fact that on the fine rolls of John's reign we have this amazing fine in which the wife of Hugh de Neville, who's one of the king's chief ministers, offers King John 200 chickens so that she can spend one night with her husband. Now, scholars have scratched their heads as to how on earth we interpret um, that particular fine. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've always thought the most likely explanation is that actually, and other historians have suggested this, the wife of Hugh de Neville was actually King John's mistress. And the two of them together in perhaps a sort of drunken carousal one evening, are sort of speculating on what it would be worth um, for, um, for, uh, for, jo for Joan, as she was, to go back and spend one night with her husband. And Joan says, oh, well, um, how about 200 chickens? A sort of rather worthless uh, offer. And they sort of fell about laughing um, uh, in that. I, having seen one or two of the Big Brother episodes recently, that's the sort of level of humour you might sometimes find there too. So it was perhaps that type of that type of atmosphere. And so this is recorded as you make, make the joke even better on the fine rolls. So you can see how intimate that is. Well, the fine rolls also record actually Henry III's rather more, I think, benign uh, sense of humour. Henry III wasn't like his father, John. I mean, John was cruel, um, untrustworthy, um, it, 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 lusting after women all the time. Henry III was uxorious, God-fearing, and in many ways rather nice individual. 
um, perhaps just as well after his, his father's reign. So Henry's sense of humour is different, but this is another find coming home, actually recorded coming home on the ship from Gascony, um, in 1243. It shows how intimately associated the fine rolls are with the king. That the king has got these fine rolls in the, in the very ship in which he's coming, sailing home from Gascony. Uh, what it records is that the king, having a joke with, or I think actually having teasing in a way, is the Latin is ludendo, having a joke um, with his clerk, Peter the Poitavin, um, ordered a, hu- a whole series of ridiculous debts which Peter the Poitavin um, allegedly owed the king to be recorded on the fine rolls. And Henry III has obviously just made up these ridiculous debts. So um, Peter the Poitavin is said to owe the king £100 for a huge sum of money, I mean millions of pounds in modern terms, £100 for a transgression, uh, an offence he'd committed on the ship, or £200 which he promised the king when the king dreamed one night of the Emperor Otto. And chickens come in again. He also has to offer, uh, owes the king lots of chickens for various sort of offences and promises and so on. So um, Henry obviously has a huge chortle at venting all these uh, ridiculous debts which Peter the Poitavin um, owed, and they're all written down on the fine rolls. And then Henry III, very careful not to let the joke go too far, because he said when Peter the Poitavin is not looking, um, the debts ought to be crossed out. So make quite sure they don't actually ever... Uh, he's not ever asked to to pay them. So I hope I've given you some flavour of the material on the fine rolls, and um, it, it's really compelling interest. And I suppose we ought to think a little bit about the, the wider context of the reign, which makes that interesting. I mean, I've already mentioned the constitutional developments of the reign. Magna Carta is implanted into English political life at the start. Remember, John issues Magna Carta in 1215, then reneges on the deal, there's a civil war, and it's only in Henry, Henry's reign, in the minority of Henry III, that his government decides we can't go on like this to win the war, to um, assure the peace. We're going to have to accept this document. And ultimately, it's, it's Henry III's Magna Carta, the 1225 Charter, which is, clauses of it are still on the statute book today. So, uh, later kings, they never confirmed John's charter, they always confirmed Henry's Magna Carta of 1225. So that's the beginning of the reign. Now, towards the end of the reign, we see Parliament, the House of Commons coming into being. The first summons of knights and burgesses together to Parliament was Simon de Montfort's famous Parliament of January 1265. So a reign, as I've said before, of, of huge political significance. But all sorts of other things are going on, altering the whole social cultural fabric. The the friars arrive in the 1220s, transforming the religious life of the country. Um, The Jews are impoverished by heavy taxation, leading to their expulsion from England in, in 1290. And it's in Henry's reign that official sanction is given to the terrible blood libel as it's called, that the Jews in Lincoln in 1255-56 captured a little Christian boy and then crucified him as a parody and and, and, and in sort of appalling sort of scorn uh, of of Christ. It was completely untrue, of course, but Henry III believed that and gave that belief official sanction. It's a period, too, where people have argued that the, the, the gentry are in the middle of a social and economic crisis, um, a transition from feudalism to bastard feudalism, if you like those 
terms. And of course, it's also a period of a, a new, uh, um, we have a coinage expert here, I know, amazing uh, new coinage. It's an extraordinary thing to think, actually, um, that one always thinks of the English coinage as tremendously sort of propaganda value to kings. You know, the king's head is on every coin, and reams are written about this. There's an extraordinary fact that the Henry's predecessors couldn't care a toss about this. Um, they, from Henry II onwards, every king called himself Henry. Um, so Richard's coins are still called Henry. John's coins are still called Henry. Um, the, the actual designs of them were often very poor. They clearly didn't think about the propaganda value of the image of the king on the coin at all until Henry comes along, Henry III in 1247, and we have a new splendid form of coinage, the long cross um, coinage, which has got a much better design of the king's head on it. And it actually says Henry III as well. Henry's very concerned now to get himself across. So that's the wider context of the, of, of the in which we ought to set these fine rules. So how far are they then accessible? How far have they been accessible um, to you and to me? The answer is hardly at all, because whereas the fine rolls of John's reign were printed in full in the 1830s, admittedly in their original Latin, um, the fine rolls of Henry III were never given that treatment. Uh, all that was published in the 1830s was extraordinary two volumes of Latin excerpts. What made them even less accessible was that they tried to imitate in this Latin the original paleography. So all sorts of complicated little designs were made in order to sort of imitate the um, abbreviations of the Latin. So to actually get to the fine rolls through this volume, you've first of all actually got to know paleography. Secondly, you've got to know Latin. And thirdly, you've got to guess 85%, which is left out, because they only included 15% of the whole. And the whole basis of it, which does actually reflect a huge value of the fine rolls, which I'll come back to, was genealogical. And there's a huge amount of genealogical information on the fi fine rolls. And um, it was genealogists, believe it or not, who pioneered this 1830s publication. And so if you had an entry which said, um, Katie, daughter of David Carpenter, um, gives a fine for this or that, it would appear. But if it just said, Katie Carpenter gives a fine for this or that, it wouldn't appear because it doesn't give you any genealogical information. And it was that totally haphazard um, criteria for inclusion which governed um, this, these 1830 publications. And as I said, the result was that only 15% of the original documents were actually ever published. That was the situation until 2004. And uh, then came along uh, Louise Wilkinson. And it was Louise, now a lecturer at Christchurch University, Canterbury, who conceived a project to actually um, bring the, pipe, the fine rolls for the first time into the public domain. And this was a project which we put up to the Arts and Humanities Research Council, which was essentially to publish the rolls down to 1248, so the, the first half of the reign. And how did we want to do it? Well, it was very much in line with the emerging vision of the, the National Archives. And if you've read the National Archives publicity, the vision is very much of history for all. It's to open up the wonderful resources of the fine, of, sorry, of the National Archives um, for everybody. And that was very much a governing principle 
of the way in which we tried to publish the, the fine rolls because the, the aim was to make them as accessible as possible to as wide an audience as possible. So how did we aim to do that? Well, first of all, we wanted to make them freely available to everybody on a public website. Secondly, we wanted to translate all the roles into English. And thirdly, we wanted to link them, to not just to translate them like a book, but to encode them electronically so that it's possible to actually index and search them, so that you can actually search these roles, which of course go, many of them, huge length for people, places, themes. And finally, we've linked it to the actual images of the roles, and you can actually see all of this on the public website. So that was the project, to, to really make this unique resource available to everybody. So you're all wondering now, how have we got on? Um, that was what we got the money to do. Um, as with many of these projects, there's a big difference between getting the money and actually uh, delivering it. Well, I think we've done reasonably well. We're now just two, two and a half years into it. So we've got half a year to go. And with most projects, as with this one, a lot of it is going to come quickly at the end. But we've already got a lot available to you. And that is very largely thanks to the work of our, the manifold and great labours of our two researchers, Paul Dreiber and Beth Hartland. And also thanks to the work of the Centre for Computing at the Humanities, King's College London, who do have done all the technical side. Particularly there, I'd like to thank Ariana Chula, Chula uh, who um, has done, I think, more of the technical work than anybody else. So what is now available on that website, which I mentioned to you at the start? Well, first of all, we've got translations of the roles all the way down. Sorry, that's the start. There's the splash page of the website. Um, with the again a membrane from the first roll, Henry the Third seal, and then look, enter the Henry the Third fine rolls website. So let's enter it, and we can see the um, the list of all the roles which have been translated so far, all the way through down to um, 1234. So that's the whole of the first phase of the reign, um, extraordinary period of turbulent politics, but also as I said of cultural change, the arrival of the friars. Uh, and so on. So, um, and, and, we, and then if we turn on, you can just see what it looks like. So, this is the beginning of the role for um, 1219 to 1220, um, and you can see each entry is numbered. At the start, it says, actually, you probably can't see because you're too far back, but if you had a microphone, um, a, a micro, microscope, you could, a magnifying glass, you could see it. And of course, you can all go and look on the website and look at it. And so, there are all the entries. Uh, nicely arrayed. All place names are modernised. We had tremendous disputes and arguments. I'll be glad to hear your views about this. But all place names are modernised and also all toponymic surnames are modernised. So, for example, in this first entry, it says the king has received the homage of Adam of Pendlebury. So we haven't left it as Pendleburr or um, Pumdleburr. We've modernised it to what it is. So I hope that's um, helpful so that's the translation of the role. Now, secondly, um, with the translation, there are the digitised images. So you can actually move from the translation of the role to what it looks like 
originally. And then actually I've slightly cheated here. I've given the 121891 because it has this nice head um, of um, Mirabelle. And then there's a zoom facility, which you can see down at the bottom how that works, which can immediately expand an entry. And there we have a much larger blow-up of Mirabelle's, I think, rather beautiful head. Um, so that's the Zoom facility, and it's great fun. Don't get drawn into it too long, because you can spend hours sort of zooming in and expanding and, and doing all sorts of uh, things. So the translation with the place names modernised, the um, images, and then finally what's available so far are the indexes for the 1216 to 1224 um, period. And so if you look at them, what I've put up is under the subject index, going back to the theme of Paul Margaret Redvers having to offer money to not to be forced to marry, um, what we can pursue this is how many women are actually being are forced to do it. And down the bottom it says, you see, fine not to be distrained, that means forced to marry. Fine not to marry, uh, or fine for having married without the king's licence. Fine to marry, for licence to marry who you will. Actually, I think it's a little bit reassuring if you pursue these themes, because they're not all that many fines of women like um, Margaret de Redfors to have to, um, you know, not to be forced into marriage. And sometimes the government seems quite aware of Magna Carta. And I've just flashed up the next one. Um, this is Otto, son of William, who offers the king six palfreys, six wonderful horses, to have to wife Matilda, widow of James of Newmarket, or James de Neufmarche. Depends whether that was a difficult one. Should we have mod put that into a modernize it or not? And we seem to have havered. Well, actually, in the text, it's de Neufmarche, if you can see. Anyway, um, so it doesn't seem so good, does it, for um, Matilda, widow of James? She's being bought, basically. But what's a little bit reassuring is that having recorded the fine of these six forfeits, we then have this order to the Sheriff of Buckinghamshire that when he can establish by Matilda's letters patent that she offers her assent and will to this, then he is to cause Otto to have um, possession of her and, and her land. In other words, she's got to assent. And what's particularly interesting is she's got to assent in writing. It's a good example of the use of writing, of written record. She's actually got to issue a letter patent saying, yes, she will have Otto, son of William, as her wife. So that's an example of how we're going to be able to sort of pursue themes through the indexes. So that's what's available now. Now, what about the future? Well, first of all, we're going to have next coming on stream the actual search facility, and that will make it possible to actually simply put in uh, a name, David Carpenter, and immediately you'll be able to call up all the references to me um, or to my daughter or to um, anyone else, and we can refine it according to period. You can match a, um, a, a person with a theme. So if you might want to find um, how many times I've offered money to get a new market or a fair or, or to have a particular uh, concession, to have a writ to begin a legal action, you could sort of mix and match like that. And so you could immediately get together um, 
a sort of portfolio of references um, for themes, places, people. Uh, and I think it does mean a tremendous transformation in research because even in a printed volume, if you're thinking of pursuing a person or a theme, you've got to pursue through volume after volume after volume, index after index after index. It takes a very long time to research the whole of a person's career. Whereas now with this search facility, when it's up and running for the whole whole of the rolls down to 1248 it would be possible in a moment to call up all the references to a person or to a person with particular dates likewise with a place or a theme so I think this is going to be a gigantic um, saving of research time and that search facility for the first eight years of the reign we hope will be available by the end of July now secondly by the end of July we're going to have be sending off to Boydell and Brewer um, the camera-ready copy for the first book version. And I think the book version of the fine rolls, which was, in a sense, really conceived of as parallel from the start with the electronic version, is going to be very important. Um, at the end of it, down to 1248, we, have to, we hope to have 1248 on the web, freely available to everyone. But equally, in four volumes, exactly the same English translation will be available in libraries, and in that sense, what does it do? It, first of all, it ensures survivability, because although I, th I hope, I'm sure the web version will survive as long as King's College London survives, because I ought to have said at the start that um, where is this web version if you Google www Fine Rolls Henry III? It's, um, it, the, it's on the, ultimately, it's on the website of King's College London. Um, so as long as King's College London survives, I hope this website um, will survive. But it's, I think, very important to have a second way of survival, a second form of uh, insurance, and that will be provided by the book version. Secondly, I think the book version, in a way, will be used differently and in a sort of companion way to the electronic version. If you're going to do a very long search, you want to get together all the references to someone or a theme or a place over a period of time, I'd immediately go to the electronic version. If, on the other hand, you just want to look at one thing, there's one reference to uh, David Carpenter I know, which I particularly want to look at between 1216 and 1224, I think you'll probably go to the book version because it's just sort of easier, quicker, and you can immediately sort of to flick over the pages, see what's in context and so on. So I, I see the two as, as serving parallel needs. And so um, that's the second thing. Immediately we're having the book version off in, uh, to Boydell and Brewer at the end of July. And this is a great year for Henry III. I've given you all a little bit of publicity about the anniversary celebrations of the 800th anniversary of the birth of Henry III. Um, he was born on the 1st of October 1207, so 800th anniversary celebrations will be on the 1st of October 2007, and they're going to be at King's College London and at Westminster Abbey, because of course I should have said at the start, Henry III is the builder of the current uh, Westminster Abbey. Um, and so the Abbey has a huge and yet never before acknowledged debt to him, and it's at that launch uh, sorry, it's at the, the celebrations that we're going to launch the print version for the, the first 1216 to um, 24 volumes. And then next year, uh, I'm not going to give a precise timetable about this, um, we will advance with the electronic and book versions 1234 and on then ultimately down to 1248. So... That's the resource which is already partly available and will become more available uh, 
to you all. There's also interpretive material. There's already available on the web, and there'll equally be in the print volume, a long historical introduction, which is extremely illuminating, uh, as it's by myself, I can guarantee tea that for you. Uh, and much more important than that, I think by myself, there's also the fine of the month feature. Now, what is this? Well, there you see all the fines of the month so far. Um, since December 2005, um, a member of the project team or an outside scholar has commented monthly on just some item of interest in the roles. And we, we, as you can see, we're keeping them going. And the one for June 2007 is The Language of Making Fine by um, Paul Dryborough. So you can all go and look at those. Now, we're very keen to uh, widen the range of people who are submitting uh, fines of the month. We're um, very keen to have outside contributors. Um, very great advantages of doing this on the web. First of all, you don't have to wait. Um, anything of value can be put up straight away. And secondly, there are no problems of space because we're very happy to have fines of the month as well as simply a fine of the uh, month. And one or two good ones have been done by very not very outside, but this one's by someone called Julie Cantor, who's an MA student at King's College London. And even the great Paul Brand, one of the greatest legal experts of the time, said he thought it was rather rather good. And there's some of these wonderful graphs and things which um, go with it. So there we have the fine rolls. They are of huge interest to professional historians, but I think they reach out beyond that to especially local historians. Think of the mass of information about towns and villages there. So, you know, anyone ought to see whether their own village, uh, town, area is, is mentioned. Um, uh, they are of great interest to anyone interested in genealogy, family history, or at any rate of testing the sorts of skills you might have acquired from doing modern genealogy on, on the medieval period. And they're just teeming with information about family structures. And that's why we've got this rather nice diagram done by Ariana Tula of the sort of relationships revealed in the fine rules of Christiana, who's the widow of Henry Lovell. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it does show, you know, the, the sort of range of, of, of material there. So I hope everyone, therefore, will dig into this material, look at it, and experiment with it. Now, in conclusion... Um, because I think of you all as here a very learned audience, um, how well for time, actually, by the way? Another 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Oh, that's fine. So uh, as you're a learned audience, I thought I would actually talk about something um, a bit more academic but fascinating, which is some of the things which have emerged from actually looking at the um, original roles. And I wanted to start, actually, here with the whole question of the headings, because I think they've been very interesting. Now, this is the heading from the very, very first um, fine roll of Henry III, and it's written in an extraordinary, elaborate way, isn't it? It's Rottle, with a wonderful L there, with a little sort of hand coming up to indicate the US has been left out. Um, Finium, who would ever think that was Finium? F-I-N-I-U, a funny sort of U with its sort of only one arm hardly coming up at all. Annie 
Regis Henrici Primi, roll of fines of the year of King Henry the, the First. Now you may think, well, that's just the clerk having um, fun, and it must have been fun to do that. But what you've got to appreciate is that that, fi- that heading was written in one of the most traumatic and terrible times of English political history, certainly from the point of view of the king. Henry III is nine um, in um, October, November 1216 when that was written. Half his kingdom is controlled by a, um, the eldest son of the king of France, Louis, to whom the insurgent barons had offered the throne. I mean, you know, if you wanted to put your money on it, I thought you'd put good money on the feeling that actually Henry's reign is going to come to a very quick end, he's going to be swept away, uh, a Capetian prince is going to become king of England, England and France are going to be brought together under the same dynasty. Extraordinary structural changes in the whole political um, power of Europe were on the off it were, would have happened if, if that had taken place. And yet... What's the clerk saying? The clerk is having none of it, is he? He's making a very brave, courageous statement that the first year of Henry is not going to be the last year. It's sort of encouraging himself. It's encouraging all the chancery clerks around him. And it's, it's make, it's, if you like, it's propaganda. It's private propaganda, because, of course, not very many people see these roles. But it's certainly testimony, I think, to the high morale of the Chancery clerks at this um, traumatic time in English history. And very similar headings uh, you can find in the other Chancery roles. Now, I think that interpretation is reinforced if you go back and look at the headings to the last roles of King John. Um, If you look at the heading for the last fine role of King John, it's a tiny little heading as though the clerk was thoroughly ashamed of the fact, as well he might be, that this was, you know, he was writing for King John at all. A minuscule little thing, sort of like this. Um, so, you know, the amazing contrast. And if you turn on, there's also amazing contrast with the headings you get um, later in Henry's reign, where some bureaucracy and boredom take over. And sometimes the clerks can't be bothered to write headings at all to the rolls. We'll see one or two examples of that later on. Or else they write these tiny little headings. So that's the he- heading for the role for the 15th year of King Henry. Notice that the clerk actually had left space to write a much bigger heading. But clearly he just couldn't be bothered to do it. And I think that reinforces then the sense that you know, it's the, the heading for the first year really is telling us something. Well, now, can I come on to another, I think, fascinating, it might seem rather recondite, but uh, feature of these first fine rolls, and under the, the chancery rolls of this period in, gen- in general, and that's the whole question of the duplicate rolls. Now, what it emerged from us looking at all of this is that all these rolls, believe it or not, and remember some of them, as I've said, they stretch 20 feet, 30 feet long if you um, roll them out, weren't just done once over, they were all done in duplicate. So the poor clerks had to do them twice. And if we go on, I can actually see that. Uh, Sorry, so that's actually one of the rolls for 1224.5, and then that's actually the duplicate of it. Notice neither clerk could be bothered to actually 
um, writer heading um, at all. Now, looking at these duplicate roles, and this is where Paul Dreiber again has been, a, I think, a great help in sort of comparing them in detail, it's very clear that the um, one role was actually simply copied from the other. Um, you can't really see this here, but this is actually what you might call the master or the first role for 1224.5. And you can see actually it's got lot, well, you, they've got some alterations, changes, crossings out, little bits squiggled in. Whereas if you go on to the what we might call the second role or the copy role, it doesn't really appear, but actually it's a fa there aren't any changes. It's just been copied out fair. Um, from the two it's, it has a much neater appearance actually there are better examples of that but it does emerge from that so all these roles it must be huge labour are copied out twice now why is that well obviously the most obvious reason is just sort of backup it's a bit have you backed up your um, computer um, when it's the same sort of thing you know let's keep a record um, a second record just in case. I think it might be slightly more complicated than that though in that I think we perhaps came to the conclusion looking at this that this is partly the result of um, different roles of different ministers that maybe the, the first role is the role of the king and his chief minister the justicia and that's the role on which the sort of fines are accorded and then the second role have a look at that again is actually the role of the, the person in charge of the chancery. It's his role keeping a sort of copy of what the king and the justicia are doing. Uh, the best sort of little proof of that is that the person in charge of the chancery in this early period of Henry III's reign, someone called Ralph de Neville, who becomes Bishop of Chichester, and he's not actually the chancellor, he's the keeper of the seal. There's a titular chancellor above him who's the Bishop of Durham, Richard Marsh. I'll, I'll come back to that in, in a little bit. And um, one very interesting thing is that, in, not in this role, but in the year before, in September 1224, Ralph de Neville, in charge of the Chancery, actually heard some judicial cases at Shrewsbury. And all the, 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 the fines, the, in the sense of financial penalties, or mercements is the actual technical term, which he imposed, are recorded on the fine roll, uh, but they're recorded only on the second roll. And that made me think particularly, well, maybe the second role, the copy role, is the chancellor's role, or the person in charge of the chancellery. chancellery. That's his role, and that's why Neville records um, the, the financial penalties he's imposed from his hearing all these legal cases on that role, and they don't get on to the first role. So I think possibly these duplicate chancellery roles, the fine roles and the others, may have their origin in different roles for... Um, different ministers, which is a sort of tension within the structure of government. Now, tension, I want to come on to two other points about these duplicate roles, very much now in conclusion. And the first is, I want to talk about the war of the roles. The war of the roles. It sounds like a sort of film, doesn't it? War of the worlds. Well, not the war of the worlds, the war of the roles. What on earth am I talking about here? Well, to understand this, you need to just have a little bit of thought about the nature of what are called the marginalia. And what you, alas, you, you can't really see this because you're too far away, but I, I urge you again to go to the website and, and call up these 
images. But if you look, what these marginalia are in the fine rolls are basically notes of the county to which the fine or the entry belongs. And actually, I've got a smaller screen here and I can see it much more easily, but it says, goes down, it goes Nottinghamshire, Berkshire, I think that's Oxfordshire, yes, so you can just about read it, um, Ebor, Yorkshire, and so on. And that made a lot of sense because, I and I haven't explained this yet, but um, remember what the fine rolls recall, uh, record are offers of money to the king for favours. Um, their, their place in royal finance was this, it was that, a, believe it or not, yet another copy of the fine rolls was sent to the exchequer so that it knew what money to collect. And what the exchequer needed to know, first of all, is what county does the fine concern because it then had to write to the sheriff of that county to collect the money and it also had to put a record of that debt into the county section of the pipe roll um, to, to which it belongs. So um, what the exchequer wants to know first of all more than anything else when it gets a copy of the fine roll, it's called the originalia roll, is what's the county this fine concerns and so that's exactly what it does here, and those counties would be copied onto the originalia roll. Now, in this way, though, the fine rolls are very different from other chancery rolls, because if you look at the close rolls and the patent rolls for this period, their marginalia, or lots of them, are not county marginalia at all. What they do, the marginalia, it, is to indicate either the person who's involved in the entry, or indeed the subject matter. So they're person's subject matter marginalia, not a county ones. So, for example, um, it might say um, two tons of wine as a gift for David Carpenter, if that was what the writ said. The marginalia might be, say, for David Carpenter, two tons of wine or something, just to sort of show what it was. But the, the fine roll marginalias are not like that. And as I said, initially that seems quite logical. But by the 1220s, actually, it was becoming less and less logical because a lot of new material is getting onto the fine rolls, which actually isn't fines, but which could really be better, if you're looking for anything, it might be better off actually having um, subject people marginalia rather than just county ones. Well, so that's the situation in the fine rolls until we get actually to this year here, 1224-5. And here we have the um, the master roll, and with its normal, as you've seen, county marginalia. But if we go on to the copy roll, something very odd has taken place. Now, there's no doubt at all that this is the second roll, this is the copy roll, and that it, 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 it is copied from the roll we've just seen. Um, and the proof of that is that the changes in the first roll are all incorporated, as it were, fair copy in the second. So it's the copy roll. And yet when we get to the marginalia, an extraordinary thing has taken place because the clerk of the second roll has declared independence. He's completely refused to follow the county marginalia of the first roll and is instead has gone over entirely, not entirely, but in, in large measure to place um, subject marginalia. Now unfortunately you can't read this but you can I think get, but you can just get a flavour of it because there you are, look, Nottingham 
Berkshire, Oxfordshire, Ebor. And these are exactly identical entries. And yet you go over here to this one and you can see that... I can't even re read them myself here, but um, they are all... Um, uh, people place, sort of, sort of people subject marginalia. I think mean, one of them says actually um, concerning the manner of Harcourt given to the Archbishop of York. And so all of them actually describe what's actually in the um, entry. They don't, on the whole, tell you what the county is. So th the year therefore begins with these two roles completely out of sync. And if you like, at war with each other as to what is the correct way of doing the marginalia. Well, war, the battle continues throughout the year until we get to the spring of 1225 when it's actually clear that the second role is winning and the first role is beginning to lose confidence in its methods and is ultimately it begins to acknowledge defeat because, and I'm sorry I haven't got images of, of this but what happened we go back to the first role first of all the first role lose, loses confidence in its marginalia at all it stops entering them so it simply stops giving its marginalia and then in the end in gosh I'd have to look at my notes to remember the exact date of this but I think it's in June July that sort of time suddenly the first role comes to an end it's not continued anymore it's abandoned and at that point, if you look at the second row, you'll find that the second row has taken over as the first row. But now it's the second row where all the changes are being made and everything. So the, the second row has won. And that victory is then maintained in all subsequent roles because all subsequent roles have large numbers of people subject marginalia. There still are county marginalia. I think they're very sensibly chosen, basically for the old type of fine. But um, fundamentally, this new method of um, of introducing people, um, person, sorry, subject people marginalia has won. So, oh my God, what on earth is going on? Why has this happened? Uh, why is there this discrepancy? I, and honestly, I don't know that. I wonder if anyone's got any ideas about that. I mean, it may be that Ralph de Neville, who's member of the person in charge of the Chancery had made a decision, we are going over start of 1224-5 to um, people subject marginalia um, and the clerk of the first role was just so stupid or didn't listen or was recalcitrant and wouldn't obey instructions and so for a while the first role doesn't do the clerk of the first role doesn't do what he's told until finally he's sort of sacked or dismissed and the role is brought to ignominiously to an end. I mean, that may be one possibility. I mean, a different possibility might be that Neville... Remember I suggested the second role is his role, so that maybe Neville introduces his reform, first of all, in his role, over which he's got control, and then the... Um, only later does he sort of carry the day across all the, across the first role as well, which is more the role of the justicia and the king. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult one, but it's certainly a sort of fascinating thing and does have a wider moral to which I'll come back in due course um, at the end of the talk, which is not very far away. Um, so that's the war of the roles. Now, can I come on, lastly, in conclusion, to the end of the duplicate roles? Because... The year 1226-7 was the last year 
of the duplicate rolls. And they're brought to an end, and after that only one roll is continued. And they're brought to an end in a very funny way, because at the start of 1226, in the course of 1226-7, you'd have thought the duplicate rolls are really fl flourishing, because two new ones are actually introduced. Um, at the start of 1226, um, the, that's the regnal year 1226, 28th of October, a new set of rolls altogether was introduced called the Liberati rolls, which basically was hiving off from the close rolls uh, a lot of writs concerned with the expenditure of money. And so a new the Liberati rolls have begun, and they are begun in duplicate. So the clerk's now doing a new set of rolls, and they're doing it duplicate. And then in January 1227, which is the final restrictions on Henry's minority were ended, and he was able to issue charters, and so a charter roll is introduced, and that too was started in duplicate. So by the early part of 1227, the clerks are having to draw up fine rolls, charter rolls, patent rolls, close rolls, liberati rolls, five sets of rolls every year, and they're doing them all in duplicate. Well, that doesn't last for very long, because within two or three months all the rolls were abandoned, all the duplicate rolls were abandoned. And you can see that happening in much the same way as I saw you lost confidence in, the, in that role earlier on. First of all, and I, again, I can't give you the exact dates for this, but it's on slightly different times between January, February, March. In all the rolls, duplicate rolls, the marginalia stop. So the clerks have sort of can't be able to add them in anymore. And then ultimately, the rolls themselves just end in mid-year. Again, without looking at my notes, I can't give you the exact details, but it's something like, shall we say, the patent rolls stop after the middle of February, the close rolls stop after the middle of March, the fine rolls stop after the end of March. Um, that sort of, of sequence, that's to say the duplicates, all stop. The patent roll ending is particularly interesting because it was clearly stopped in the middle of a membrane. The others sort of go down to the end of membranes, but the patent rolls, it's a very short membrane, and it looks as though the last one, it's sort of, they cut off the rest of it to reuse for some other document. So why are the duplicate rolls brought to an end? Um, well, again, I've no real certain explanation for this. No helpful clerk wrote a memoranda about um, chancery practice explaining why this decision was made. I think, though, the most likely explanation takes us back once again to the person in charge of the chancery, Ralph de Neville, um, Bishop of Chichester. Now, I think it relates to the, the, the way in which he's become far more secure in his position and thus far more able to carry through reforms. Now, down to 1226, he'd only been the number two. He'd been the person in day-to-day -day charge, but above him as Chancellor, there had been Richard Marsh, Bishop of Durham. Now, Richard Marsh, Bishop of Durham, was very, very sensitive to his status and position and once wrote a furious letter to Neville, um, which survives, um, saying, why on earth have you left? What are you doing? We've left off my title. You haven't been calling me Chancellor in the last letter you wrote to me. Um, so Neville had to sort of write humbly back and say, call me oversight. 
quite, quite, quite uh, um, unintentional. So um, Neville wasn't, was, was in a quite weak position and not really sensible to carry through radical forms. You can imagine that if um, Neville had abandoned the duplicate roles while Marsh was Chancellor, Marsh was sure to interpret that as some sort of reflection on his position and um, some sort of attack up, upon him. Well, now, Marsh dies in 1226, and Neville becomes Chancellor in name as well as um, in actual actions. And during the course of 1227, March 1227, Neville does it even better because he's actually granted the chancery for life in a charter. And I think the ending of the duplicate roles comes too close to that to be a coincidence. You know, the duplicate roles are being ended um, sort of February, March, April, that was sort of through into the summer, the very time when Neville has been given the chancellorship for life. And I think it's that which gave him the, the confidence to fundamentally say, oh my God, what are my poor chancery clerks doing? You know, having to carry right out five sets of duplicate roles, it's not worth going on like this. Let's end them. And that, in a way, is where I'm sort of going to end because what I think, what I've been talking about, these changes in the roles, it shows that the medieval chancery clerks were the masters of the roles, not their servants. They intended them to serve a proper function. And if you think about it, the, the change in the marginalia was a sensible change. It meant that it was much easier to look back in the roles to find concessions for particular people, much easier to look back in the roles to investigate really their subject matter, to find out what is going on in these particular entries. And so that's the first message I want to give to everybody um, here today and to the wider audience who will listen to this as a podcast, I gather, which is that you too should go into the roles and investigate their subject matter, just as the clerks at the time wished to be able to do. Uh, how What they would have given for uh, electronic search facilities. The second lesson, though, is don't let it take over your life. And um, clearly... <laughs> Um, that was Neville's view that, um, you know, we don't want to be swamped by this material and the OTO's writing out of uh, duplicate roles, which takes up vast amounts of, of time. There are other things in life, uh, and my wife often has to remind me of this and my children, than um, fine roles and chancery roles and even... 13th century history. So um, I hope you'll keep everything in balance and just like Ralph de Neville was keen for his clerks to keep everything in balance uh, but within that balance do now go out and investigate the Oso oh rolls. Thank you. This podcast is copyright the National Archives All Rights Reserved. 